Jimmy's Table. Hey everybody, you're listening to the Jimmy's Table podcast, jimmystable.com. I'm your host, Jimmy Humphrey, where I like to have conversations about faith, life, culture, and sometimes food. So today's going to be kind of a different episode and kind of difficult. Um, for many of you who uh, know me personally, um, you're probably aware, or for some of those of you who are new subscribers, um, you're probably aware that uh, my friend and former co-worker who was a guest on this podcast back in January, um, Bill Fair, who came on the podcast to talk about his unusual life journey and career as a bike messenger. He'd been a bike messenger for over 20 years in uptown Charlotte, Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, I worked with Bill about a decade ago for about three years. Um, and then in the past year, we kind of uh, struck up a little friendship and you know had Bill over, uh, did some creative stuff with him, um, worked on a podcast episode um, together, not only in episode 44 in which I recorded his uh, life story and uh, helped him tell that, um, but also another thing that he did with me with uh, the story of Sam Bethea, who was a street preacher in uptown Charlotte, Charlotte's most famous street preacher, which, you know, was my one-year episode, uh, episode 52. So if you have the opportunity, highly encourage you to go check both out. But, um, you know, unfortunately, Bill uh, Fair passed away this past week um, very unexpectedly. He was, he was getting ready to turn 51 um, just later this month. Uh, he passed away, my understanding is, in the middle of the night, uh, Saturday evening. Um, and I don't know much more beyond that. Uh, I've been told I'm told that, uh, you know, unfortunately because of COVID-19, we'll be able to have a public funeral of any sort uh, anytime soon. Um, but hopefully maybe later this summer, I've heard that uh, maybe there might be the possibility of doing some sort of memorial service in honor of Bill. Um, but, you know, this... This podcast today is dedicated to Bill Fair and is being inspired by him. Um, and it has to do with a, a difficult topic. Uh, it's the topic of, topic of grief. Um, that's going to be the theme of episode 60 today. And in order to prepare for this show and in order to have some sort of context of something to, to specifically talk about, I wanted to to this week read, and I went ahead and read in preparation for this Um Famous book by C.S. Lewis, or maybe not so much famous, but a lesser of his famous books um, called A Grief Observed. Um, so today's podcast is dedicated not only to Bill, but uh, reflecting on C.S. Lewis's Grief Observed. Um, if you're not familiar with C.S. Lewis, I'm sure most of you probably are. You're either probably familiar with C.S. Lewis, though, on two different fronts. You're either familiar with him for his famous children's book series, The Chronicles of Narnia, which were made into a variety of movies uh, a number of years back. Um, but there's also C.S. Lewis, who was the great Christian apologist and writer um, who had a lot to say on God and theology and, and pop culture uh, reflections on God and things of like th that nature. Um, he's very popular for his uh, most famous book and that topic in that area um, called Mere Christianity, as well as uh, the so-called Screwtape Letters, um, which was a pretty interesting book. And those are probably his two most popular books outside of the Narnia uh, series. Um, but he did write this book um, called A Grief Observed. And I've known about this book for years, um, and I decided, you know, in light of Bill's death, that I probably should, you know, 
read on it. Um, because for me personally, grief is not something I've had to, you know, personally deal with a lot of my life. Of course, I've known people in my family and things that die um, and pass away very tragically in an untimely manner. Um, but it just so happens to be my lot in life that it's not something I've had to deal with a lot on a personal level. Um, and I thought this would be a good opportunity to perhaps kind of try to to wrestle with the idea uh, myself and the emotions associated with grief. Um, this book by C.S. Lewis, highly recommend you pick it up. Link to it in the show notes. You can read it for free online. It's in public domain. Um, but you can also download it if you want on Amazon for like three bucks. Um, or you can buy a hardback copy. It's, it's not a hard book to get. Um, and it's a very short book. You could probably read it in about four or five hours if you, you know, want to just plow through it. Um, it's not very long at all. But the book's a great book, I think, to really wrestle with. Um, not only from a Christian perspective, but even if you're not maybe a Christian, and I know not everybody that listens to this podcast is, I still think it's a good book to wrestle through. Um, if you're dealing with the loss of a loved one and, and wanting to think on the emotions associated with grief, um, because in this, uh, this book, uh, a grief observed, this is a very personal book, uh, written by C.S. Lewis. Um, and it actually comes straight from his personal journal that he kept. Um, C.S. Lewis, uh, married a woman by the name of Helen Joy Davidman. Um, who was an accomplished author in her own right. Um, and she died only of cancer only four years into their marriage. Um, and so, you know, C.S. Lewis uh, was forced to deal in his very short marriage um, with this, this grief um, that overtook him um, and watching his uh, bride suffer in the four years that they were married before she passed away with, and lost her battle with cancer. Um, the book, it's emotionally gut-wrenching, it's raw, it's honest, and C.S. Lewis gives expression, especially in the unique ways C.S. Lewis can give expression to things, um, to the full uh, depths of his human emotion that he was experiencing uh, after the, the, the loss of his wife. And he, you know, like I said, he documented this in his journal. Um, and there, there is something of a journey he goes on where he he starts off just really emotionally raw, gut-wrenching, says a lot of terrible-sounding things. Um, and he finally, you know, by the time the book is over, maybe has a, for lack of a better term, happy ending. Um, you know, it's, I wouldn't even really call it a happy ending, but, you know, you can tell he's definitely finally come to somewhat a sense of peace um, about the loss of his wife. Um, so I really highly encourage you to check out this book. Um, and I hope today to do it some justice, not only because it's such a great book to read, I really enjoyed reading it as, as difficult as it was at times, um, because of just the rawness of the emotion expressed on the pages. Um, but uh, I can definitely see why it's uh, something of a, a classic and is a book given to a lot of people who, who suffer uh, deep loss. Um, like I said, I think if, even if you're not a Christian, you'll probably still find a lot of what C.S. Lewis deals with in this book, um, still something you can probably personally relate to. Uh, so again, highly encourage you to check it out if you have not already. 
So in order to talk about today's podcast, I'd like to just go ahead and I'd like to read some quotes that I've gathered from the book. You can also find more notes, uh, some great quotes that I pulled from each of the four chapters of this book um, that I think are definitely worth discussing. Won't be discussing them all, um, but uh, you know, can better give you a taste of, of what's in the book um, and whether you want to read it or not for yourself. You can find that at the show notes for episode 60 for jimmystable.com. Again, for, for all four chapters. Um, so with that said, I want to go ahead and read some of the quotes from each of the chapters um, and just kind of offer some commentary and reflection on each of the particular quotes um, because I just found these quotes to, to frankly just be so rich um, and definitely worth talking about. So from chapter one, I have a couple of quotes. First quote from C.S. Lewis's A Grief Observed. Lewis says, I look up at the night sky. Is anything more certain that in all those vast times and spaces, if I were allowed to search them, I should nowhere find her face, her voice, or her touch? She is dead. Is the word so difficult to learn? End quote. You know, I think that's you know, it's a, a theme that Lewis talks about throughout the book, and we'll see it later chapters, but... Um, there's this very real sense that Lewis is coming to grips with the terms that his wife is in fact dead. And, you know, even though he may look for her in a thousand different places and may look at a thousand different photographs of her and may have some sort of sense of um, preservation of even her voice, um, you know, he still is wrestling with coming to terms with the fact that, you know, he is never going to see her again. And uh, she is, in fact, dead. And he, I just, I marvel at him asking, is that word so difficult to learn? Because I think, you know, when we do lose someone close to us, you know, we do go through times of looking for them. You know, we might see them. We, we might even see individuals who remind us of them um, or loved ones who, like, you know, children reminding you of their father and things of that nature. Um, and we might hear their voice echoed in the voice of a thousand others, mannerisms of other people that remind us of our loved one. Um, and we kind of go on this cosmic level search at times, it feels like, that that we're even looking up at the night sky and, you know, even should we go on the journey to try to find them? We'll never do that again. And I think, you know, acceptance being one of the five stages of grief, uh, so to say, is definitely one of the hard things because you just don't want to let go when someone dies. Um, and it's, it's hard to imagine life without them again. Um... I know, and since recording, I'm doing some stuff in, in, in you know, this office um, where I recorded this podcast uh, with Bill, um, where I record my podcast at home. You know, I sat here and thought the other day as I listened to episode 44 of the podcast again, I was like, man, I can, I can literally look over my shoulder and see him in my mind's eye. Um, and, you know, there's something haunting about being able to hear his voice again. Um, and to be able to look at the spot where I know he was. Uh, and to sit there and think, wow, this guy was just right here in my house. I, I ate dinner with him but just a couple months ago. 
Uh, we shared a plate of ribs that I had smoked. Um, and, you know, I can sit there and look at it. And I'm like, man, he's gone. Um, you know, I think of, uh, you know, recently I lost a, a dog. A dog passed away. A dog of 15 years in my family. Um, and, you know, every he was, he was one to, to, to sit there and... and lay behind cushions and he had certain hideout places that he'd like to hang out and things of that nature. And anytime I move a particular cushion or pillow where he'd like to, to bury himself on a regular basis or, or when I get up in the morning and look at the place where he used to sleep, you know, I sit there and my, my eye looks still instinctively for him. And, you know, my dog, he's, he's gone. Uh, and no matter how much I look for him, he's still not going to be there. Um, and that's difficult to accept. That's something I think we all deal with uh, when we go through grief. Another quote um, from the C.S. Lewis book, uh, Grief Observed, he says, Part of every misery is, so to speak, the misery's shadow or reflection. The fact that you don't merely suffer, but have to keep on thinking about the fact that you suffer. He says, I not only live each endless day in grief, but live each day thinking about living each day in grief. I know over the years when I've personally lost someone close to me, um, you know, or, or have gone through some other sort of pain, um, like, you know, uh, back in September, October, when I was actually in the hospital for a week, um, with a blood clot in my lungs as a result of breaking my leg. Um, you know, I couldn't help but think during those times about how miserable I was. Um, and not only in the actual pain of the thing itself, um, but also in the fact that I had to sit there and think about the misery that I was in. Um, the misery itself became a form of torture. Um, and... Every single day seemed to be the same thing, um, played on rewind like some sort of bad episode of Groundhog's Day with Bill Murray, um, and you know you're it's not nearly it's not merely enough that you're suffering, but the fact that you think about your suffering is itself a form of suffering that we all experience when we're going through grief or any sort of prolonged chronic uh, pain, um, and that in itself becomes a torture. And it almost is something that causes us to want to fight against uh, the suffering that we're going through as if somehow that would end it. Um, but it almost seems like in doing that, we, we only make the thing worse for ourselves. Um, and we just experience this endless cycle of grief on top of grief, um, in which it's hard to escape from. One of the, um, you know, C.S. Lewis talked about this grief and experiencing this grief. And he talked about how uh, at times, you know, especially as a Christian, you're encouraged to turn to God um, in your suffering, in your grief. And, and that's, that's what many people do. And, you know, uh, anytime we've lost a loved one, it's, it's almost like this natural instinct, this divine instinct that we have. Uh, to kind of search for God in the midst of our misery, in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our loss. Um, C.S. Lewis 
once said elsewhere that we have this God-sized question mark in all of our hearts um, that only eternity can hope to fill. Um, and I think, you know, when we go through these, these times of suffering, we, we often turn to religion, we often turn to God, we often try to turn to faith and try to maybe rekindle something we know we should have had all, all, all along. Um, but, uh, you know, C.S. Lewis talks about this in chapter one as well. He, he says, quote, Meanwhile, where is God? This is one of the most disquieting symptoms. When you are happy, so happy that you have no sense of needing him, so happy that you are tempted to feel his claims upon you as an interruption. If you remember yourself and turn to him with gratitude and praise, you will be, or so it feels, welcomed with open arms. But to go to him in your need is, and I'm sorry, but to but go to him, your need is desperate. When other help is in vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face and a sound of a bolting and a double bolting on the inside. After that, silence. You may as well turn away. Why is he so present, a commander in our time of prosperity, and so very absent, a help in our time of trouble? And, you know, this is one of the more interesting quotes um, that Lewis has, and we'll, we'll see some more about this with wrestling with grief, especially from a Christian perspective, because C.S. Lewis kind of starts saying some pretty daring things. Um, and you'll see even worse quotes than this uh, throughout the book. Um, at one point in the, the book, C.S. Lewis uh, re- turns on God and says, God is a cosmic sadist, and he's an eternal veterinarian who does nothing but put us down um, and puts us out. <laughs> You know, and, and, you know, he says some things that sound, frankly, pretty blasphemous um, if you were to get right down to it. But, you know, this is one of the things I love about this particular book um, because C.S. Lewis isn't afraid to give expression to the things that we're thinking of um, in our times of loss, our times of grief, our times of sorrow. Um, he's not afraid to truly... Uh, dig into what I would call perhaps one of the most overlooked uh, aspects of our Christian tradition, and that is that of lament. Um, you know, we, we often think of our faith as a very positive thing, a very happy thing, a thing uh, that brings us great joy. Um, but I find in C.S. Lewis's Grief Observed that Lewis is not afraid to make room for lamentation. Um, for this deep, soul-piercing level of grief and dismay uh, that even the greatest of saints and, and pillars of faith, um, you know, aren't afraid to go into, even though uh, maybe others would have them do that. And in fact, interestingly enough, I learned while doing some a little research about this book, A Grief Observed, that, you know, the contents of this book were, were so difficult for for somebody who had made such a career and uh, and the kind of brand as you know this great outspoken Christian apologist um, in Great Britain, but um, you know he had to end up originally publishing this book under a pseudonym, uh, under a fake name. I forget the name of the fake name offhand, um, but they just thought the the publisher just thought there is no way people will tolerate C.S. Lewis saying these things after being such a uh, you know, outspoken apologist and defender of the Christian faith. Um, eventually that would change and they would publish the book under his name, but for a number of years it was published under a fake name. Um, and I, I think, 
this issue of, you know, having to wrestle with God in the midst of silence. Um, you know, some Christians would call this the dark night of the soul. Um, and, you know, in which, you know, it seems like when we, we all like those mountaintop experiences with God, when everything is going well with our lives and we can lift our hands up and rejoice and clap um, and celebrate all that God is doing in our lives because everything just goes well and all of our prayers seem to be answered. Um, but in these times of grief, it's not uncommon for a lot of people to, to kind of feel like they've been abandoned by God. Um, in fact, C.S. Lewis also talks about in this chapter a quote where he says, uh, where he reflects on Jesus on the cross in which Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Of that, C.S. Lewis says, quote, He reminded me that the same thing seems to have happened to Jesus Christ. Why hast thou forsaken me? I know. Does that make it easier to understand? Not that I am or I think in much danger of ceasing to believe in God. The real danger is, is of coming to believe such dreadful things about him. The conclusion I dread is not, so there is no God after all, but so this is what God is really like. Deceive yourself no longer. And our elders, he said, submitted to this process and simply said, thy will be done. You know, some more edginess there by, by Lewis. You know, talks about Jesus Christ, you know, with his dying breaths on the cross, saying, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And sometimes in our grief, and our dark moments, our dark nights of the soul, uh, we get to those places where we feel like the door from heaven has been shut on our face and that God has bolted it shut and there's nowhere to be found. And even though Jesus Christ, Savior of the world, you know, Messiah, King of kings, Lord of lords, second person of the triune God, um, you know, to, to have such an experience of feeling abandoned by God on a cross. Um, and, you know, that's something it seems like we all may ultimately experience at some point in our lives. Um, I know in my personal life, there's definitely has been some dark moments um, where I definitely felt such a thing in myself, um, even as a Christian, to where I, you know, even wondered... Um, you know, myself, like, am I going to continue to believe in God? How, how can I believe in God if this is what God is really like? If I have to experience such troubling, dark times, times of abandonment, times in which I feel like I need God the most, and he seems like he's not the ever-present help in time of need that, uh, you know, the scriptures, you know, say that he is. How is it that God can feel so absent when I feel so alone? Um, and it seems to be nobody else in the world that I can turn to. That's hard. Um, and it doesn't make it any better, Lewis says. Like he kind of, you know, uh, kind of is a uh, melancholy sort of, you know, submitting to the pattern that other Christians have gone through over the years who've experienced such things and simply, you know, throwing your hands up and saying, well, you know, whatever I'm going through, Lord, thy will be done. Well, that doesn't make the scenario any better, and it doesn't make you feel any better, does it? Um, and I, I think, you know, you live long enough, uh, you experience enough disheartening, uh, and you suffer enough loss, whatever form that loss ultimately takes. And I think that's a point, you know, we'll all eventually go through in our journey of this life, our journey of faith, um, to where it seems like, when we need God the most, he's the least to be found. 
Um, and, you know, we might sit there and wonder why. And I don't know that there's even a necessarily an answer to that other than to say this is an experience that many have suffered and it's a, it's a trail that many have uh, walked before. Um, and it's something that even Jesus Christ himself, um, you know, the so-called suffering servant of the Bible, uh, where the prophet Isaiah said he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. It's the sort of grief that even Jesus Christ himself had to bear. Um, as that man of sorrow and one acquainted with grief. Um, so if we can find any comfort in that, we can find comfort in the fact that Jesus Christ went through the same travails that we may ultimately be faced with. Um, and as somebody that uh, you know, we can ultimately find comfort in knowing that even God's anointed one um, should ultimately suffer such things. Going on to chapter 2 from A Grief Observed, uh, there's this really interesting um, quote in which C.S. Lewis says, quote, Today I had met a man I hadn't seen in 10 years, and all that time I had thought I was remembering him so well, how he looked and spoke and the sort of things that he had said. The first gave minutes of the real man shattered the image completely. Not that he had changed, on the contrary, I kept thinking, yes, of course, of course. I had forgotten that he thought that or disliked this or knew so-and-so or jerked his head back that way. I had known all these things once and recognized them the moment I met them yet again. But they had all faded out of the mental picture of him that I had in my mind. And when they were all replaced by his actual presence, the total effect was quite astonishingly different from the image I had carried about with me those ten years. How can I hope that this will not happen to my memory of Helen? That is not happening already. Slowly, quietly, like snowflakes. Like the small flakes that come when it is going to snow all night. Little flakes of me, my impressions, my selections, are settling down on the image of her. The real shape will be quite hidden in the end. Ten minutes, ten seconds of the real Helen would correct all this. And yet, even if those ten seconds were allowed me, one second later the little flakes would begin to fall again and again. The rough, sharp, cleansing tang of her otherness is, is gone. What pitiable can't to say she will ever live forever in my memory. Live, that is exactly something she won't do. End quote. You know, as, as much as we might cling on to memories, um, you know, and this is a theme he picks up throughout the book, um, and this is a theme we'll re revisit later. There's nothing like the real thing. Our memories kind of serve as these phantoms. Um, but, and we think in our mind, you know, this is what that person is like. And we think that with people who we know in real life, um, who are no longer dead. Um, but still alive. And we, we have these images and these perceptions of people in our minds. Um, but the reality of the person is infinitely greater than the memory we have of them, no matter how accurate we think that memory of that person is. Um, and 
C.S. Lewis, you know, finds it pitiable, he says, <laughs> uh, to say, well, she will forever live in my memory. Live, he said, that's something she'll never do again. And so he finds sort of a, a torment in trying to kind of hold on to the memories he has of her. You know, and it's, it's very common for us, I know, when we lose a loved one, to turn to those memories, to remember the good times and the times they made us laugh and, and the times uh, they did something amazing. And the, we, we try to hold on to the smell of them even, you know. Um, we hold on to a piece of clothing or, you know, some other memorabilia associated with them, some sort of little icon. Um, you know, this was so-and-so's tool. This was so-and-so's paintbrush. This was so-and-so's blanket, or this was so-and-so's favorite chair or, you know, whatever. And those, those things help us to preserve the memory of those people. Um, but at the end of the day, C.S. Lewis kind of finds torment in that, that is as powerful as the memory can be, the memory is never any substitute for the real thing. And he's having a hard time coming to grips with that. You know, he, he wishes the memory would help her to live and to help her live forever on uh, his thoughts, but he knows she'll never live again. Then C.S. Lewis later says in the same chapter, chapter 2, he says, and grief still feels like fear, perhaps more strictly like suspense or like waiting, just hanging about waiting for something to happen. Now there is nothing but time. This kind of picks up on uh, something he was hitting on at chapter one, has still continued to talk about in his journal here, um, about how suspense you know, just creates this ever sense of eternal time that you, you experience where, you know, it's like, like Groundhog's Day all over again. Um, and the suspense, you keep waiting for something to happen. Um, like, you know, if, if one day this will all just be better somehow. But he says, you know, that almost becomes like a form of torture, the waiting just waiting for something to happen, but you wait and you wait and you wait and you wait. And they're still dead. That's hard to deal with. That's, that's hard to deal with, folks. Um, to think about such thing like as that. That we always feel like we're going to get over something and we just keep waiting for that something to happen and we don't know what that ambiguous sort of something is. You know, they, they say time heals all wounds, uh, so to say, and, and maybe in some sense time does help us heal. Um, but in the same time, time can be torturous. Time can make us feel like we're in some sort of eternal hell um, and we just keep thinking if we just keep pressing through and pressing through and pressing through, eventually things are going to change and we hope for that change. But then the next day is exactly like today, even more so all over again. And so again, Lewis um, turns in the book to his thoughts on religion um, 
and his faith. Probably the most well-known quote from the book, C.S. Lewis says, Talk to me about the truth of religion, and I'll listen gladly. Talk to me about the duty of religion, and I'll listen submissively. But don't come talking to me about the consolations of religion, or I shall suspect that you don't understand. Again, that kind of picks up on his theme of the silence of God. Um, and you know, we, again, we often turn to faith, turn to religion, turn to God um, for consolation and comfort during these dark times. And that's not to say that there's not comfort and consolation from God uh, during these dark, dark times. I think that I think that's there in ways more than we realize, even when we can't see it and he feels so distant um, from us. But, you know, again, I'm, I'm glad C.S. Lewis isn't afraid to say these things, these seemingly blasphemous sort of sounding statements. Um, and, and I think, you know, he, he, he approaches this from a very pragmatic, um, you know, perspective. Of things because when I was processing the grief of our dog recently, uh, the loss of our dog um, recently, I was I was I was going to God in prayer, uh, and my heart was really sad. I mean, this dog has been on in our lives fifteen years. I mean, I've only been in the dog's life seven years or, or, or closer to eight years, um, but you know, I I've known this dog a long time. It's a, our family pet, uh, very close to this little dog that we had that died. And I was talking to a friend about it. Um, and, you know, I told my, my friend, I was like, you know, I know people say to turn to God during these times. And I'm certainly trying to do that. But I don't want God right now. I want my dog. I miss my dog. Um, th the thing that would bring me comfort right now is not the presence of God. It's the, it would be the presence of my dog. Um... And I certainly think that definitely applies, you know, if it applies to, to dogs, you know, who are become little members of our family. And, and we like to think of them as people, even though, you know, technically they're not people, but they're definitely people to us. Uh, but whether we're talking about dogs or we're talking about people, um, you know, in those times of, of loss, we're not looking for God, even though we may go knocking on that door. Um, and... Uh, you know, the comforting words that people try to offer during those times, the, the cute platitudes that people offer. Well, you know, God has a plan for everything. This happened for a reason. And, you know, he's not suffering anymore right now. And, and uh, you know, screw that. <laughs> you know, I... Well-meaning, intended people I know, and I know people get nervous, and they 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 mean well. They want they want to help you out, but many of them end up just sounding like the friends of Job in the Bible, um, and their their words only increase your torture. Um, you know, book of Job in the Bible. Job got to the point in his sufferings when his friends were trying to comfort him that uh, in the midst of the boils and sores and pus that were forming on his body, that he was taking broken shards of pottery to cut those pus boils open just so he could find some sort of relief. Um, because his, not only were the, 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 the boils on his body bad, but uh, the boils on his spirit from his friends trying to offer him, offer him words of comfort in a time of loss were of no help either. 
Um, and he found more relief in cutting himself with broken pottery shards. Um, so, you know, I think C.S. Lewis is definitely on to something here, something that he gives a very raw expression to about how the consolations of religion, you know, for a lot of people, I would say, at times, definitely feel kind of worthless in times of loss. You know, uh, he says later in the chapter, what St. Paul says can comfort only those who love God better than the dead. And the dead better than themselves. Like at the end of the day, you, you really have to want God. <laughs> you know, if, if God's going to bring you comfort in your time of loss. Um, but most of us aren't so saintly. You know, we want the flesh and blood. We don't want the guy in the sky. The guy in the sky seems a little aloof, you know, during those times. And, uh, you know, his presence maybe is often far um, from us in those times. Because at the end of the day, we're, we're not missing God. You know, I have God 24-7. I have God with me in the good times and the bad times and all the times in between. Um, but what I lack is the person that I love. And no amount of loving God will ever bring that person back. Uh, Lewis also talks about how, um, you know, how difficult it was leading up to the loss of his wife. Like I said earlier, uh, he married his wife knowing she had cancer, that our time um, was probably short. Um, and expanding on this theme further about religion, he says, quote, What chokes every prayer and every hope is the memory of all the prayers Helen and I offered, and all the false hopes that we had. Not hopes raised merely by our own wishful thinking. Hopes encouraged, even forced upon us by false diagnoses, by x-ray photographs, or by strains remissions. Um, by one temporary recovery that might have ranked as something of a miracle. Step by step, we were led up the garden path, and time after time, when he seemed most gracious to us, he was really preparing for us the next torture. And yeah. C.S. Lewis, you know, talks about how when his wife was going through her battle of cancer and when they saw all these positive signs of things shaking and moving and, you know, seeming remissions and signs of healing and progress and maybe this isn't going to be so bad after all. Maybe we've you know, misdiagnosed her, and maybe she's actually going to have a better prognosis than, than what was originally uh, offered, you know. Um, he talks about how that became a form of torture, um, and what they thought was grace um, really turned out to just be something that made their situation uh, worse. And then he goes on to say, sooner or later, I must face the question in plain language. What reason have we except our own desperate wishes to believe that God is by any standard we can conceive good. Doesn't all the prima facie evidence suggest the opposite? What have we said against it? Again, this is kind of more the, you know, deep lamentation here by Lewis that, you know, he's even willing to strike out against the so-called goodness of God. Because, you know, if God were really good, God would have saved so-and-so. 
God would have healed his wife. God had the power. God had the ability. God had the time. God has the so-called love. Well, what happens if in all of that, you know, what we call good <laughs> isn't really? And that God is not as good as he makes himself out to be. Again, daring language by Lewis. Um, and he's saying a lot of things that, you know, have definitely shipwrecked the souls of some people over the years and have definitely ruined, you know, the faith of many. Some people, you know, going through such things, you know, ultimately concluded that God was dead. That God's not real. That there's no way that God could be good and such evil and terrible things happen in this world. And you know, it's easy when we hear such things to counter them with, you know, all these great philosophical and theological sort of arguments and, you know, all the sort of rote memory sort of dogmas that we uh, espouse in such times, you know? And I really question when people are wrestling with such things that we should give even bother answering people in those times, because I don't think trying to provide our cute answers that we do in those times is particularly helpful. And instead of giving people the, the cute little answers that we give them during these times in which people even lament and wonder if, if God is even good as God says God is good, you know, maybe we would be better off just making some distance for that person. Allow them to go through what Lewis went through, and to personally wrestle with God in his grief, in their grief, you know? Because I think there's something there that that person is ultimately only ever going to get from God, and guess what? You and I are not God. And trying to offer our cute little Sunday school type lessons isn't going to do a lot of people very much good and may actually end up backfiring and making things worse. In chapter 3, you know, Lewis starts to realize in Grief Observed that, you know, maybe he's been a little hard. <laughs> you know, he's in chapter 3 of A Grief Observed, he kind of starts reflecting on his own journal. Um, and he starts reading back um, through it. Um, and there's this one great quote from chapter three where he talks about, quote unquote, the pleasure of hitting back. And he goes on to say about the pleasure of hitting back. And of course, as in all abusive language, what I thought didn't mean what I thought to actually be true. Only what I thought would offend him and his worshipers most. That sort of thing is never said without some sort of pleasure. Gets it, quote-unquote, off your chest. You feel better for a moment. I definitely think this is something we can all relate to. You know, there's, there's definitely been moments in our lives in which we really felt like the need to, you know, give somebody a piece of our mind and just let them know what we think and just tear them a new one. Um, and in those moments of anger and frustration and venting, in which we just really lay into that person and say the most awful, awful things we can think of. And we say those things not necessarily because they are true or even because we believe them, 
Um, but like Lewis says, um, it's just about the pleasure of hitting back. Uh, all that abusive language, he says, you know, I didn't say these things because I thought them to really be true. I said them for the sake of offense. I wanted to piss off God and I wanted to piss off his worshipers is ultimately what he was getting at. Um, and he said, you know, that brought me some sort of sick, twisted sense of pleasure. It helped him get it off his chest. So he said the blasphemous things, not because, you know, he was trying to give some sort of coherent theological, philosophical thought about God and the universe and everything in between. He just said it because, you know, at the end of the day, it brought him some relief. So he says here, it gave him a sense of pleasure, if even just for a moment. And so realizing, you know, some of the things he's said have been awful in this book. And you would think, man, how could, you know, somebody as great of a thinker uh, and Christian apologist and defender of the faith say the things that he said? Well, in truth, you'll probably say the same things at some point if you live long enough. It reminds me of of the, the prophet Jeremiah in the Bible who you know, who was deeply upset at God, um, talked about some prophetic words he gave in the book of Jeremiah. Um, and he felt like at some point in the book of Jeremiah in the Bible that uh, he, he accused God of being a liar and a deceptive stream. And, and the prophet Jeremiah said, you know, if this is the way God's going to be, I'm no longer going to prophesy in his name. So if Jeremiah, who you know, eventually wrote the book of Lamentations um, in the Bible, if Jeremiah, the prophet, holy prophet of God, uh, could accuse God of the things that Jeremiah accused God of, of being a liar, a deceptive stream, you know, something that we would never say about God, who is truth and the, you know, the father of all truth and the devil is a liar, well... I will say in my own experience and dealings with God over the years and wrestling with my faith, there are definitely some moments where I felt like Jeremiah felt and have felt like C.S. Lewis felt where, you know, you say some things to God, you know they're not true. But you say it because you're in the realness of the struggling of your pain, you're, you're deep in lamentation, you're deep in, you're deep in grief, you're deep in pain, and the reality of your faith makes you struggle with these things that we go through here in this world because there seems to be a disconnect between heaven and earth. And we feel that disconnect and we wrestle with that disconnect and we think, God, these are not the way things ought to be. And... You know, the great thing about what God is about these things? God can take your blasphemy. God can take your lamentation. God can take your grief. And you know, I think, I think, I could be wrong. I think he welcomes these moments. So long as they're just moments. They're not meant to be a permanent state of something that we deal with in perpetuity for the rest of our lives. But they're moments of expression that God knows you live long enough, you'll experience them. 
And if Jesus could cry on the cross, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? If Jesus and his lamentation could accuse God of abandoning him, which, you know, sounds a little blasphemous himself, if I can be so bold. Maybe a little hyperbolic there, but uh, let's go with the blasphemy thing. If Jesus could say it, and Jeremiah could say it, C.S. Lewis could say it, God's okay with you being real with him, folks. God's okay with that. He welcomes it. And he can deal with it, because he knows where you're at. Even if you can't figure out where he is in those moments of despair and grief, those dark nights of the soul. Going on to chapter 4 of A Grief Observed, there's a number of great quotes here. Man, I wish I could talk about them all. Um, but I don't want to be here for <laughs> forever. I'll let you read the book. Um, but in chapter 4, it's a little bit better of a chapter, I think. Better in the sense that C.S. Lewis has kind of come to terms with his grief. He's processed his grief. He's embraced his grief in full. And I think that's maybe why he is ultimately able to come to some sense of acceptance about the loss of his wife. Um, and he kind of starts wrestling again with the broad, broader philosophical, sort of theological um, questions and how he ultimately wrestles with these things. In quote from chapter 4, Lewis says, Can a mortal ask questions which, which God finds unanswerable? Quite easily, he says, I should think. All the nonsense questions are unanswerable. How many hours are there in a mile? Is yellow square or round? Probably half the questions we ask, half our great theological metaphysical problems are like that. He says elsewhere, When I lay these questions before God, I get no answer, but rather a special sort of no answer. It is not the locked door. It is more like a silent, certainly not uncompassionate gaze, as though he shook his head, not in refusal, but a waving of the question, like, peace, child, you don't understand. I can't reach the ghost of an image, Lewis says, a formula or even a feeling that combines them. But the reality we are given to understand does. Reality, the iconoclast once more. Heaven will solve our problems, but not, I think, by showing us the subtle reconciliations between all of our apparently contradictory notions. The notions will all be knocked from under our feet. And we shall see that there was never really any problem to begin with, in quotes. You know, I, I like this, this sort of thing that C.S. Lewis deals with. He, he realized, reflecting on his griefs, where are you, God? Why did Helen have to die? Um, what was the purpose in this? How can you be considered good in such a terrible time as this? And, and the other such things that Lewis wrestles with and that many of us wrestle with in our grief. Um... And he realizes the silence that he experienced 
wasn't really the locked door that he imagined at first in his, in his grief. And rather, the, the no answer that God gave was really just a compassionate gaze. It's not that God refused Lewis, but he simply waved the question. He simply, you know, said to Lewis, Peace, child. You don't understand. And Lewis, in kind of a, a witty, sort of humorous way, you know, says asking God these questions is like asking how many hours are in a mile and, or is the color yellow square or round? Kind of ludicrous questions to really be asking anyway. Um, kind of an illogical fallacy, if you will. Um, and he wonders if maybe the half of our great questions that we attempt to answer in these times of grief and the other great wranglings that we do in regard to God and the troubles that we face in this world, problems related to theodicy and things of that nature, um, the question of suffering, question of good, the question of bad, evil, and, and all that sort of stuff, that maybe, just maybe, these questions really aren't relevant to begin with, even though they seem so pressing to us, and the mental jumping jacks that we sort of do in our minds and our hearts as we attempt to grasp and wrestle with these questions and these things that sort of plague us, Lewis concludes that, you know, maybe in the end, we get to heaven one day, and instead of finding the great answer as some sort of statement, you know, some sort of thing that you can pontificate and write down as some sort of uh, creedal sort of confession um, some sort of precise theological language that, you know, finally connects all the dots and makes the, gives us a formula that we can compute um, and grasp and understand. Maybe when we get to heaven that, you know, the realities of heaven will ultimately show that the problems that we were trying to wrestle with in our hearts and minds were never really contradictory things to begin with. And in those first moments of eternal life in the ages to come that we'll realize that we got ourselves all worked up over what really amounted to nothing and that we got bent over shape over asking questions to things that you know were impossible to answer that God himself Lewis says could not answer because you know you might as well ask what shape the color yellow is Lewis says elsewhere in chapter 4, quote, My idea of God is not a divine idea. It has to be shattered time after time. And he shatters it himself. He is the great iconoclast. Could we not almost say that this shattering is one of the marks of his presence? The incarnation, he says, is a supreme, supreme example. It leaves all previous ideas of the Messiah in ruins. All reality is iconoclastic. He says elsewhere, the earthly beloved, even in this life, incessantly triumphs over the mere idea of her. And you want her, and you want her with all your resistances, with all her faults, all her unexpectedness, that is, in her four-square and independent reality. And this, not any image or memory, is what we are to love, even after she is dead. Not my idea of God, Lewis says, but God. Not my idea of Helen, 
but Helen herself. Yes, also not my idea of my neighbor, but my actual neighbor. I, I really found this, this chapter, chapter four, to, to be so powerful. Um, and really kind of puts it all, puts it all in perspective. Um, and really his, this, this thing right here where he says that God himself is the great iconoclast. If you don't know what an iconoclast is, it's basically the destroyer of idols and images, you know, like they used to make in the middle ages so that you could pray to the Virgin Mary and things of that nature. Um, and there would be individuals who would come about and smash the statues of the Virgin Mary um, because you can't have any idols. <laughs> so C.S. Lewis kind of paints this picture of that we have these idols, these images of God in our mind, these images of people in our mind, of, of even his wife, Helen. Um, but he's in this idea of Jesus, you know, the, the Jews in Jesus's day had an idea of what Messiah ought to be. And then Jesus came on the scene and showed that Messiah was completely other than what they thought Messiah should be. Um, and God's like that too. And reality itself, the earth itself is the destroyer of all iconoclastic ideals and images that we have in our minds. There's no substitute at the end of the day for reality. Um, and God himself is willing to be the smasher of those ideals um, because those ideals will ever forever have us chasing phantoms and figments of our imagination and keep us really from loving God, loving our loved one, or as he talks about, his, even his own neighbor. We must not be motivated merely by the idea of God or Helen, he says, or even the idea of his neighbor, but the actual neighbor, the actual God, the actual Helen. And I think that helps us in our grief because when we go through our grief, we so desperately want to hold on to the memories, the memories of things that used to be. And as wonderful as those memories can sometimes be, we need to ultimately see that they are no substitute for the person themselves anymore then a statue is a substitute for God himself. And that frees us to really love the person for who they really are, even in their death, just as it frees us to love God for who God really is, or to love our neighbor for who our neighbor really is. Because we, at the end of the day, we're so easily wrapped up in images and thoughts and, you know, these things that we build up about people in our hearts and our minds. And C.S. Lewis sees, as great as those things are, that God at some point is going to challenge those statues. And he's going to cause us to come to grips and to terms with him. And I think that ultimately frees up Lewis here to talk about in later parts of the chapter about how 
he can now enjoy not only God, but he can to some degree, he says, enjoy his wife, even in her death, by praising both, by praising God and by praising his wife, who is no more. Um, he says that praise, that praise, it's not, it's not the, the grief that allows you to enjoy them. He says it's the praise. It's the praise, he says, that allows me to enjoy her. It's the praise that allows me to truly enjoy God. So I think if we're going to, to go through our grief and all the forms that our grief is going to take, we're ultimately going to have to, to embrace it. We're going to have to take it on in all its ugliness and all its terror, and all the gut-wrenchingness of it all. And to be so bold in those times, to be honest and forthright with God in what we feel, and to hold nothing back, to hold nothing back. Feel what you need to feel, folks. Don't be afraid to fight don't, don't fight your emotions. Don't fight your emotions. Give in to them. It's okay. Experience all the stages of grief in whichever, whichever pattern they play out in your life. But ultimately, when you get to the point that you can, find room to praise not only the individual that you have lost, even though they're no longer... Make room to praise, praise God. Praise God for the person that you had, that you still carry with you. Praise Him for His goodness. Praise Him for all the amazing things that He has allowed you to experience with that person, that loved one in your life, in all the ways that they made your life richer as a gift that God gave you <laughs> for a time and a season. Sorry, folks. <laughs> Suddenly loosen a little bit. That's a funny thing about grief. You never know when it's going to hit you. <laughs> you never know. So, everybody, this has been Jimmy Humphrey, episode 60, as I offer my reflections on a grief observed, a hope for those of you who are listening who knew Bill. This episode's been dedicated to him. I pray that this has helped you and been some sort of sense of therapy for you. <laughs> I'm just trying to process it in my own way, myself. That's okay. Process it in your own way, folks. Process it in your own way. If this has been a blessing for you, please share it with others. Please share it with other folks you may know be going through a hard time and may be grieving themselves. Share it at jimmystable.com. This has been episode 60. Reflections on a grief observed by C.S. Lewis. This is Touch to Share It with somebody. Share it on Facebook, Twitter, whatever. And email me, jimmy at jimmystable.com.
Hope you got something out of those folks. Take care. God bless. And uh, if you haven't subscribed already, uh, be sure to subscribe to this podcast through whatever platform you may be listening through it, either through the website at jimmystable.com. You can sign up for the email. Or, uh, you know, if you listen to this, listen to it on your favorite podcaster, be it Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher. Um, this is everywhere that podcasts are broadcast, to my knowledge. Take care, everybody. God bless, and uh, have a good one. Do you see the light? What light? Have you seen the light? Yes! Yes! I have seen the light! Air smudge.